welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. I am your host, JJ Jerez. With me, of course, Double A. That's it, Arif. We're d- we're doing that now. Arif Double A D. Stuck. And of course, Patrick Stedman behind the uh, controls here. Time to talk some abs hockey here on a Sunday afternoon. Of course, the Broncos play in the Raiders, so. Usually, you know, with most media members, that's a big deal. Not for us. We're hockey guys. So we're here to talk some hockey with you and hockey. We shall talk, Arif. How you doing on this fine Sunday? I'm doing well. Speaking of the Broncos and the Avalanches, is, is Darcy Kemper the next Peyton Manning? Or is he the next Teddy Bridgewater? Which way would you go with that? Or is he the next Mark Sanchez? Like, what is what is Darcy Kemper to you? That really uh, grinded my gears, so to speak. Um, what what you're bit, referring same. to there. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, a lot, a lot to get into since our last podcast. We got a game, a loss to, to go over, and then of course the schedule that's coming up ahead. But first we got to talk about the Pierre Lacroix ceremony that opened up last night's game against St. Louis Blues. I mean, um, you know, I'm still not uh, in the games yet, waiting to update my vaccinations, which should be finished here this week. So uh, from your perspective, you got to sit there in the press box, get a good view of the whole ceremony. What's your breakdown of it? How nice was it? Uh, what what did you like about it? It was so cool, man. They they had his family on the ice and it was just I know I know the Avalanche love I mean like many teams that have histories like the Avs do. They love to kind of live in the past and constantly remind us of the past about the legends and Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg and Patrick Waugh and the rivalry with the Red Wings like all the many many things that the team accomplished for so, you know, in such a short period of time. It was a lot of that, but it was so well done compared to pretty much any other thing I've ever seen, any any show, any any uh, TV clips, any uh, retirement nights. Like it was so much better, like well put together. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that is because Pierre Lacroix is obviously no longer with us, but his son spoke, Eric Lacroix, who was obviously part of the organization for a long time. Uh, we had Joe Sackick speak. His wife was there, Charlotte Graham from the organization. It was just really awesome. I am a little bummed that they started so early and not a lot of fans were in their seats, but they started to pour in as the ceremony went on and, and it ended up being really, really cool. And I'm really, really happy to see that banner raising right up there with the six retired players. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was how many fans were there ready to watch the ceremony? Because I know they announced that it would be happening. Um, of course, I, I wish more fans would have been there in attendance to see it because, you know, a lot of thought went into that, a lot of heart um, and a a lot of emotion even, right? And you could tell just from the way the players were acting and the way they were uh, just kind of handling themselves, the former players, that is, Adam Foote, Melon Hayduke, and Peter Forsberg with Ray Bork, and uh, who who, who am I missing? Sandus Ozilich. Joe Sackick. Joe Sackick. No, no, not Sandus. I don't know where I got Sandus Ozilich. Yeah, so from my perspective, I was watching it on uh, the stream, and the stream provider I had left the whole ceremony out. So, you know, again, I wish there was a little bit more care and attention, and people were there to uh, really absorb that, but it is what it is, and it seemed like it was a nice ceremony from the replays and the pictures that we all uh, got to see for ourselves. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, like I said, in the beginning, not a lot of fans were there. So the NHL is kind of, I think they did this with the Milan Hayduke retirement too. Uh, so it's been a few years, but the NHL now has a rule where when you have retirement ceremonies and things like that, you do it before the pregame skate, that that warm up right before the game. So 
you know, if it's a seven o'clock start, instead of doing the ceremony at like 6.15, 6.30, and then going right into the game, you do it at 5.30, 5.45, clear the ice, bring them out for the pregame skate, clear the ice again, and then start the game. So that's what they did, obviously, yesterday. And it was so last minute. I mean, in the beginning, there wasn't many fans, probably like 10% of the arena, which in May would have been a sellout. <laughs> but uh, it, they started to pour in as the ceremony went long. It was pretty long. Um, cool little note I found out from somebody in the organization, in the press box is, you know, Pierre Lacroix, as we know, has a great attention to detail. So one of the things that I noticed during the ceremony, this was a thing that I noticed was when the banner was brought out by the five retired players, they were lined up by position and you just know that that was done on purpose. So in the front, you know, carrying the banner behind their back, holding it and walking forward, Joe Sackick was in the middle of the banner. And on his two wings were Hayduk and Forsberg. And then holding the banner in the back, one at each corner and walking with it, were the defensemen, Ray Bork and Adam Foote. Uh, you know, there's obviously somebody missing, which we'll talk about. But you just know that that was done on purpose. And when I went and mentioned that to somebody in the organization, in the press box, they said, oh, if you think that's a lot, wait till you hear Pierre Lacroix's favorite number was five. And instead of starting the ceremony at six o'clock, they started it at 5.55 just because. So those cool little things are like my favorite part of the ceremony yesterday. Yeah, I love that. And and you're I think you were the first one to point out that the uh, they lined up in their positions, which is yeah, I, I love that detail too and a fun fact. I got to I got to give that uh credit to my brother. I sent him a picture of it and he responded back saying these dudes really lined up by position and I looked down and I was like, "Yeah, holy shit. How did you notice from the blurry <laughs> pictures?" But they did. I mean, it's it's all it's absolutely what they did. And then hanging the banner itself, um, it was interesting the things that they decided to put on the banner, right? Like I thought um, one that stood out to me was first championship in Denver history, something yeah. along those lines. Denver's uh, first major sports championship. Yeah, so uh, I guess what, what were the other ones? It's kind of unique that they decided to go with those things because that's what's going to hang up there for, uh, for as long as uh, we'll be around. Yeah, so two Stanley Cups, Denver's first major sports championship. NHL record nine consecutive division titles. Uh, the, the NHL record portion scares me because that's something that could be broken. Uh, being Denver's first major sports championship, that's never going to change. Like that will always stay the same. Six appearances in the Western Conference Final, two President's Trophies, longest record sellout streak. That's another one that could change. It's at 487 games. I remember that one vividly as well. That one ended the second season after the lockout, which later that year ended up being the first time the Avalanche missed the playoffs. So it was a perfect run of just, you know, the the 11 or 12 years or whatever it was, I think 10 seasons of the Avs making the playoffs every year. So that's what's hanging up there. It's obviously on the same exact banner as all the players where it's the old school uh, what used to be the home jersey with the mountain stripes that are gray and blue, not the newer ones that are just gray. Uh, I love that they stick with those classic looks for all the banners. It, it kind of gives you an ode to the old school look of the avalanche. Obviously, it'll probably change with guys like Landis Gog, McKinnon, whoever else gets eventually retired because they never wore those jerseys. But Pierre was part of that era, and that was the jersey that was worn when he ran the team. I remember being at the uh, 100th consecutive sellout. Little did we know that it was going to reach, what, what was the final number? 600 and... Four, four, 487. 487. Wow. Any idea what the uh, current record is or what the, what the leader is? That's something worth checking. I'm not sure. I know the Penguins for a while were like up in the 300s. They might still be going. I don't think they've... I mean, I don't know how they're counting it with COVID. I'm guessing they're just going to keep starting from where it was pre-COVID and not counting, obviously... 20-something home games with no fans. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Pittsburgh is up there right now. 
Yeah, I remember having a little puck, a commemorative puck of the 100th consecutive sellout. I wonder if any of our listeners has the same puck, too. That'd be awesome if somebody sends me a picture of that puck. But uh, moving on, as you mentioned, there was one player missing from the uh, opening ceremony itself, and it was a pretty pivotal player, as, especially if you look in hindsight at Pierre Lacroix's career as a whole, and that's Patrick Wall, right? And especially considering they had the three wings, the two defensemen, man, it would be nice to have completed the lineup with the goalie there. So I guess, um, what do you think is the reasoning Wall didn't make it out here? And um, I guess, yeah, just your overall stance on, on Wall not being there. It's, we we know we know exactly the reason. It's it's Wall's relationship with the organization is still tarnished. It's simple as that. It's been it's been just over five years, five years and two months since Patrick stepped down. Uh, it's a damn shame that it went down the way it was, that the way it did, because of the guys that were retired by the Avalanche, all six players, Patty was the one that was closest to Pierre. He was his agent before he became a general manager in 1994 when he took over for the Nordiques. He left his agency and turned to GM for the Nordiques because he had he had a belief in what Quebec was building. And then obviously a year or so later, just over a year and a half or right around a year and a half later, he traded for Wah, who was his client before he left the agency business. So... Them two go way back. Um, they were, you know, they were tied at the, they were, they were inseparable. They were tied at the hip when Patrick was here as a, as a coach. And even before that, as a player, and it's a damn shame that he wasn't able to make it because of the way things went down. You know, there's still sour grapes there. It's not that Patrick Wah quit. It's that Patrick Wah quit when he did and how he did using an ind- independent uh, public relations team in Quebec rather than the Avs PR. I mean, Jean Martineau, who uh, has been around the organization since the days of the Nordiques, he was either boarding a flight or on a flight when Patrick announced that he was stepping down. And Jean Martineau and Patrick Wall, like Pierre and Patrick Wall, were inseparable. So it's that's ultimately the reason why. And it's a shame because you know Patrick wanted to be there. Uh, egos aside, whatever the hell the, the the history of the organization and Patrick from 2016 aside, you know Patty wanted to be there. You know damn well he was watching on TV and you know he would have hoped and wished he could have been a part of that because that dude loves Pierre more than probably anybody that's ever played for this organization. Right, and he is absolutely loyal to Pierre, right? That's how Patrick Waugh ended up in Colorado in the first place because he already knew he trusted Pierre Lacroix. He already knew that he could come to Colorado and kind of do things the way he wanted to, and that's kind of exactly what's biting him in the ass is that he's such a loyal guy, and and he's one of those people that once you burn that bridge and once you burn that trust— He's just kind of going to shun you forever, right? And it's not that we exactly got the picture painted for us that it was a messy breakup, but you kind of get the idea that it was considering the timing. Like you said, it's not that he quit. It's when he quit. So, um, you know. It's the timing. It's the fact that it was openly uh, pretty much all but obvious that him and Joe Sackick were butting heads. Joe had started to build confidence in the way he wanted to build the team, and and Patrick just wasn't here for it. It was Tyson mm-hmm. Jost got a four-year deal. Not Jost, sorry, the other Tyson. Barry got a four-year, $22 million deal that summer, and uh, Patrick was against it. He didn't want to build around defensemen that are smaller like that. He wanted to play an older, more rugged game like the old-school NHL. And obviously, we see where the NHL has gone now. We see the Adam Foxes and Kale McCars and Quinn Hughes and Sam Gerrards of the world. Patrick just wasn't for it. And uh, his relationship with Joe probably started to get a little flimsy over that summer before he quit and then obviously the way he did it and when he did it so close to the season 
and uh, through an independent PR company was just kind of the cherry on top. And I don't even know if it's just Patrick right now who on his side is, you know, just sitting back thinking the the relationship has been tarnished and I'm not coming. I think maybe the Avalanche probably have the, some of those feelings as well. I'd like to think Joe Sackick, being the guy he is, maybe made a call or tried to text him or reach out to Patrick. But who knows? I mean, maybe there are still some sour grapes there from both sides. Yeah, interesting how it all played out. But of course, let's not take away from the ceremony that was. I mean, it was a good uh, homage to Pierre and all that he brought to us. He brought us all joy. And, you know, I think a lot of us are Avalanche fans because of him. And without him, you know, who knows what could have unfolded. Yeah. And and I love the guys that were there because, I mean, when you look back at the, the glory years of the Avalanche, there were the staples, which were Sackick, Forsberg, Hayduke, Foot, and Wall. Those were your staples. And then you had those guys that were in and out that were also big pieces, which are the uh, Chris Drury's, the Alex Tangays, the Rob Blake's, those other big names that kind of played a part but weren't here long enough to like be part of that main core. So to see Foot, Forsberg, and Sackick, they're obviously Sackick's always there, but to see Foot there, and, and Peter Forsberg, by the way, mentioned during his media availability, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, that this was his first time back in the States since COVID. He was really upset that during the summer he wasn't able to attend Pierre Lacroix's uh, uh, funeral services. Uh, well, not funeral services, but the the services they had for him over the summer. Obviously, he passed away in December, almost 10, uh, 10 months ago now. He wasn't able to attend that ceremony. And uh, when he got the call for this one from Joe, he said, I'm in. And he flew out here. And this is his first time here since COVID began. So Forsberg made the trip out. But what stuck out to me was Ray Bork. Because Bork wasn't, he's one of those supplementary pieces. He's like a Tange, mm-hmm. he's like a Rob Blake, where he wasn't here for a long time. But what stuck out to me about Ray Bork was the fact that this is a guy that played here for just over a year. He was here for a year and a few months. And if you remember when the Avs traded for Ray, he was a he was a rental. He was a playoff rental, and they ended up falling out to the Dallas Stars in the Western Conference Final. But there was a conversation there with Pierre to bring him on board for one more year, to let it ride, to go all in, because Blake and Wall were also pending UFAs at the end of the 01 season, as was Bork, obviously signing a one-year deal. So for Ray Bork, even though he was only part of the organization for a year and a half, Pierre still was that important to him for him to show up to something like this. Obviously, he was also the first player retired by the Avalanche. So it was really cool to see Ray there because the other guys there were lifers. Hey Duke and Foote and Forsberg and Sackick. Those are the guys you think about with Patrick Wall when you think of the glory years of the Avs. Ray Bork was kind of just this supplementary piece for the second run, and he still showed up. Yeah, I mean, in hearing all of them speak of Pierre, I mean, obviously you just hear it in their voice even... Uh, a guy like Adam Foote, who's rugged and tough, you can tell he just has a real soft spot for a guy like Pierre Lacroix, and everybody has a unique story about him. I mean, Peter McNabb was sharing some memories of his own, and you know, you know, everybody just has good things to say about him, and that's uh, how you end up with getting such a nice memorial service. So, um, you know, yeah. moving on, like you said, there were a couple former players there. How good was it to hear from some of those guys, despite it being about Pierre? The parts that weren't about Pierre, I mean, you know, what what, did, what was your kind of biggest takeaway from those handful of guys that you got to hear from yesterday? So let, I'm going to go two ways. We're going to go professional, then we're going to go personal. So professional, it was really cool to hear from, uh, to see Adam Foote, Peter Forsberg, and Eric, Eric Lacroix right in the middle of them meet with the media. That happened at the first intermission. We went down to the media room where Jared Bednar usually speaks, and now the players um, and all three of them were lined up uh, on a table, Eric in the middle, Foot and Forsberg on either side. 
it was cool, number one, to see the way that these guys still interact with each other. Foot in Forsberg in 2021 is literally foot in Forsberg in 2001. Is literally foot in Forsberg returning to the Avalanche in 2008. Like, it's the same dudes. Their lives are so different. Adam Foote stayed in Colorado. He helped out the organization for a bit. He raises two kids through Colorado's development hockey programs, through the Rampage and all that. They ended up both playing junior hockey in Canada. They ended up both getting drafted by the Lightning. One of them is now in New Jersey, part of that Blake Coleman trade. One of them is a regular with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Adam Foote stuck around and did it like that. Peter Forsberg's life went a little bit different. He tried another comeback in 2011, which you know was when Adam Foote was still here, his last season with the team as a captain. He ended up going back to Sweden. He did some coaching. Now he's part of that agency group working with Claude Lemieux. He's been in Sweden for so long. He got married. He started to have kids. Their lives are so different. But when you put them in that room together, they were still Fopa and Footer. They were still those two guys that you see interacting with each other and having Eric Lacroix sitting right in the middle of them, just being the goof, the funny guy that he is, uh, kind of talking in length about how it was so cool. Like Eric's been part of this organization for a while. Uh, he ran the team for a little bit when Greg Sherman was the GM. I mean, Eric Lacroix was really the GM at that time. It wasn't really Greg, but uh, Eric Lacroix was part of the organization for a little bit while, for a little while, and he still was taken aback despite all of those accolades of the fact that he got to play. He mentioned it a bunch of times during his media availability. I got to play with this guy and that guy, pointing at Foot, pointing at Forsberg. I got to play with Sackick and Wah. I got to be part of this family. No offense to the other organizations I played with. He said that three or four times. But this organization was a family, and it was because of Pierre, because of his dad, that kind of started that that feeling within the organization. So from a professional standpoint, it was really, really cool to see the way these guys interacted with each other. It was also really cool to see the things that they talked about. And I know I'm kind of going on a little bit of a, uh, a rant here, which Arif does four times every podcast. Patrick, shout out to you for, for having to edit it. Um, so it was really cool to hear the things they talked about. Peter Forsberg talked about his injuries. He talked about how in 2001, when he had that spleen removal surgery, Pierre Lacroix came up to him when, when uh, Forsberg wanted to return in the finals against the Devils. Pierre said, no, 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 no. I, I could care less about winning the next game or the Stanley Cup. It's your health. It's your life that matter. You're not playing. There's absolutely no way. When Peter was making his comeback in 2011, this is the question that I asked him. Uh, when Peter was making his comeback in 2011, I said, you know, Pierre wasn't the GM of the organization, but he still was there. He was a president. Did you contact him? Did you talk to him about that? Was he for it? Was he for you coming in and trying to risk this one more time? And P uh, Peter was straightforward. Yeah, we did. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've kept contact with, with uh, Coco and Pierre throughout the years. Uh, and, and then we kind of decided, you know, I knew I had a little foot problem there, but we decided, oh, just try it, you know. If it doesn't work, fine, no problem. You just go out and see if you can play. If it works, awesome. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. It's, uh, it's we're on your side anyway. So and that's kind of how it was. And he said, when I talked to Pierre, it wasn't about, you know, whether I'm going to risk anything or risk hurting my foot. It was about giving it one last shot. If it works, great. He said, Pierre told him, if it works, great. If it doesn't, at least you tried. It is what it is. No hard feelings, no worries. So that was really cool to hear about. And my favorite part from both Foot and Forsberg was talking about that 2005 summer coming out of the lockout. The NHL implemented a hard salary cap. And we remember what happened that summer. Korean Solani, who signed one-year deals, moved on. But Adam Foot and Peter Forsberg both had to move on as well. 
And Peter talked about how the conversations he had with Pierre were not about, you know, any hard feelings. It was just, this is the way it is now. The salary cap's not going to let me bring you back. No hard feelings. And even when they were with Philly and Columbus and both became captains of those teams, they kept in touch. And then the avalanche ended up bringing both of them back on multiple occasions. So you just know that it was easier for them to come back because of that relationship they had built with Pierre, because of that family feel that the organization had built from 96 to 05. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to follow that up. You, you, you kind of took everything there, right? That was a lot. That was a lot, but it was, it was just such a great experience. Yeah. And that's kind of my thought exactly is Peter Forsberg kept coming back to Colorado. Adam Foote stayed in Colorado. And the big reason for that was Pierre Lacroix being the the uh, key piece of the avalanche that he was. And why? Because he valued people first. He valued the relationships that he was building with these players over the the game itself. And obviously that's what got him as far as it did. And just a, a respectable person around here. And he deserves a statue somewhere around Ball Arena, in my opinion. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that go up here in the next year or so. I, I 100% agree. And, and uh, listening to Joe Sackett give his uh, speech during the ceremony on the ice, you know, it's cool to have a former player run your team. That's always something that everybody loves to see. You know, Joe Newendike ran the Dallas Stars for a while. Ron Francis in Carolina. Obviously, Steve Eisenman's doing his thing with the Red Wings right now. It's cool to see that former player be back. But for Joe Sackick, it's not, a, it's not just a former player back. It's a former player that was here during the Lacroix era. And he talked in length about having no better teacher and no better mentor than Pierre. And when you look at the guys now, when you look at the Gabe Landeskog saga that we saw over the summer, when we look at the way that they've taken care of Kel McCarr and Miko Ranton in hell, when you look at the way that when I asked Miko if he ever thought Gabe was going to move on, or I think Peter Boas, and if he ever thought Gabe was going to move on, he was quick to say no, he was coming back the whole time. He was really quick to say it. Joe Sackick is building that same culture here. We saw the way Eric Johnson talks about this organization and has ever since he's been here. Joe is going out of his way to do the things that Pierre did. You know he's going to take care of Nathan McKinnon. They'll eventually find a goalie who's going to be a lifer, part of the core, and they're going to take care of him the same exact way. And to have Joe not just be that former player and former captain, former legend of the team, but to be somebody who was there under Pierre Lacroix and got to learn from him and looks at him as a mentor and a teacher— it speaks volumes of where this organization is going. And I don't think we ever think, I've never personally thought that far into it, into Joe Sackick being a GM and, you know, why he's in this position and why he does the things he does. But seeing that ceremony kind of brought it all full circle. Yeah, that's a really good point. Obviously, if you learn from Pierre Lacroix, you know, he's going to take all the best traits from him and use them uh, today. Yeah, I, I love that idea. It's it's just wild to think that even with that, Pierre Lacroix still has his fingerprints and, you hear it all the time from new guys that join the team, right? Just like Eric Lacroix was saying, how this was a family here in Colorado. Whenever a new player jumps into that locker room, that's the first thing they say is how close they notice the team. And yeah, it's led by a guy like named Gabe Landeskog, and he's the one that keeps the room together and keeps the room tight. Man, you could just draw the parallels, and you can already see the future unfolding for Gabe Landeskog to ultimately be the future GM of the Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, that's that's a guy that if he stays put in Denver, you know damn well he's going to look into something like that because that's that's the exact type of way this team's going. As much as things change, they remain the same. As, mes- as much as history changes, it often repeats itself, and you kind of see the Sackick-Landeskog relationship mirror the relationship of Pierre Lacroix with Joe Sackick when he was the player and captain. It's really, really cool to see all that. I mean, it's it's funny to think how much you learn from your mentor and teacher because let's think of Patrick Waugh. When he was hired as the coach, what did he say? He said, when I was a player 
in 02 and 03, his last years in the league, he knew he wanted to get into coaching and he often did, or he obviously did pretty quickly with the Quebec Ramparts. He said, I spent a lot of time in Bob Hartley's office learning from Bob. Obviously, Tony Granato ended up taking over, but learning from Bob Hartley, uh, picking up tips from him. And lo and behold, Patrick Waugh kind of had the same coaching style as Bob Hartley. <laughs> they were both really hard-headed, crazy, screaming at the refs, screaming at their players in a good way, in a lovable way. For better but or Patrick, for worse, right? Yeah. For better or for worse, exactly. But Joe Sackick really mirrors the way. Obviously, he has a personality for it too. You can't tell Patrick to come in and be like a Pierre Lacroix. They're, they're worlds of differences between the two personalities, despite them being such great friends. Joe Sackick has come in and done the exact same thing Pierre Lacroix did and is building that same exact family from the organization, from the front office, from the fact that Chris McFarland should be a GM in the NHL and is still on the Avalanche's front office team all the way down to the players and the staff, so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I love this conversation. One final thought before we move on here, Arif. I know this Pierre Lacroix conversation went a little longer than planned, but you we're, we're hearing all these stories in hindsight, right? I mean, now that it's a, a several years, decades even have passed and these players are more comfortable, you know, like Peter Forsberg discussing his injury, um, you hear more about how much of a, a fingerprint Pierre Lacroix had on the teams he was running, right? At the time, you don't you don't hear that much about what Pierre Lacroix is doing or saying. And much like Joe Sackick, he's often behind the scenes, not really doing much to our knowledge. But he, he's really just running like a little hamster, doing his thing, doing being the GM, and uh, you know just putting magic together and treating players well. And that's the stuff that we won't know about until you know ten, fifteen years down the line when we can finally pull back the curtain and open up about that. So I'm fascinated to hear these former stories. And it also makes me think what's going on right now that we're one day going to hear about. Yeah. And uh, Eric spoke during his, uh, during his speech that he gave on the ice, because he spoke to media, but he also obviously gave a speech on the ice during the ceremony being Pierre's son. He spoke about how the least favorite thing that Lacroix, Pierre Lacroix had in his job was when he had to make a trade. Because he had to trade somebody. He had to tell somebody that you're leaving. And my brain right away was like, oh, that's why he mortgaged the future and sold a bunch of draft picks. Because draft picks are inanimate objects. They're not people. So he didn't want to be the guy to have to go into the locker room and be like, hey, so-and-so, uh, we're trading you for Ray Bork. We're trading you for Theo Fleury. We're trading you for, uh, I don't know, Tommy Sallow in 2004. We're trading you for whoever. I don't know why that's the name that came out to me. It was the Tommy Sallow acquisition in the 04 season when Dave Abisher was starter. So he, you know, Rob Blake, there was a lot of guys that went. Adam Deadmarsh, that's another piece that was one of those supplementary pieces and then ended up going away. I bet that conversation with Deadmarsh sucked. I bet the conversation with Aaron Miller sucked. I bet all those conversations, trading Claude Lemieux, that they every single one of them just kind of hurt him to the core. And knowing that Joe Sackick, you know, might have to make those decisions himself here coming up soon. You know, right now, the only thing that the Avalanche have had to do is trade guys like Ryan Graves and let guys like Brandon Saad walk and let guys like Pierre Edward Belmar walk. But what happens in a couple years if or you know, maybe not next year, but in a couple of years when Eric Johnson's deal expires and you don't have the money to re-sign him, you don't have the spot for him. What happens if down the line, Bo Byram becomes a big shot and Devon Taves maybe signs an extension and the Avalanche decide we're going to trade Sam Girard? The conversation he's going to have to have with somebody like G about trading him, you know, just as an example. 
it's going to be really tough for Joe. It was really tough for Pierre. And, uh, you know, that's something that we're, like you said, we're going to learn about it down the line. We're going to learn about it, hopefully, when we learn about Joe Sackick being the architect of a couple Stanley Cups, a whole bunch of sellout games, a whole bunch of division titles, which they had last year, some president's trophies, which they had last year, and obviously some success. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like we could probably fill a whole podcast going on with this conversation, right? I mean, I have four or five more thoughts popping into my head just as you're saying that. So let's just move on. The one thing I will say before we move on was from a personal level, that was the coolest thing I've ever done, which was talking to Peter Forsberg and Adam Foote. Because as Forsberg and Foote were talking, look, as as Wah, sorry, not Wah, as Landeskog and McKinnon and all these guys, you know, when McKinnon mentioned something like, you know, I what he said in 2019-20 when he said, I've been on the team for seven years and this is the best team we've ever had. And what he said last year, I've been in the league for eight years and I haven't won shit. I think back to the seven or eight years McKinnon's here. I think back to being 20 or 21 when he was drafted or whatever. And I think, yeah, I was living in Detroit, hoping to come cover this team one day, dreaming of one day coming in and covering McKinnon, dreaming of one day coming in and covering Landeskog. So while these guys were the team that I loved, they weren't like my idols. They weren't my superheroes. You know, when you're younger and you you idolize whatever it is you watch, if you're into wrestling, The Rock is your superhero or whatever it may be. Uh, they were never that. But the generation of Adam Putfoot and Peter Forsberg, they were that. And to go in there and ask them questions about certain things, like to go in there and ask Peter Forsberg that question that, you know, we we discussed a little bit earlier and played earlier is you had that 2001 spleen surgery and then in 2011, uh, you tried to make a comeback. What were those conversations like? My brain doesn't go back to thinking of these players going, God, I hope to one day cover McKinnon. My brain goes back to being a fan when Peter Forsberg was announced being out of the LA Kings. Being this young kid who was excited, elated. I remember when Peter Forsberg re-signed with the Avalanche in 2008. I remember jumping up and down and screaming to my brothers, holy shit, Forsberg's back. And I remember in 2011 when he tried to come back uh, writing some crazy ass all capital letters Facebook status about how happy I was that Forsberg's going to try to make a comeback. And then obviously him retiring two games later and how sad I was. So like it was cool from that sense because like these were legends that were always like superheroes to me. These were the guys that I idolized. It wasn't the same feel as the O'Reilly, Duchesne, McKinnon, Stastny, so on and so forth era, Varlamov, you name it. It was a different feel. And to get there and ask them questions and as they're answering it, I'm thinking back to that time in my life, not just in their life. It was just a very surreal moment. I don't know how I kept myself composed. I really didn't. I was kind of stuttering my way through the questions. I was kind of shaking, but it was it was, it was was a really cool moment. So like that... That was just something that I don't think I'll ever get to experience again because I don't know when we'll get a chance to talk to guys like that again. Yeah, and like any good superhero group, like, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Power Rangers, uh, there's somebody behind them who's kind of controlling everything and the reason that all of them are together, right? And that was Pierre Lacroix. So without Pierre Lacroix, that superhero team wouldn't have been around. They wouldn't have enjoyed Colorado, maybe asked for a trade. So, yeah, he's such a piece of our fandom and a big reason you felt the way you felt yesterday being around those guys. But yeah, Peter Forsberg just steals a room, doesn't he? When he walks in, I remember being there for the alumni game when he walked in, it's like, wow, that's the Peter Forsberg. Yeah. Like Adam foot is a very cool, genuine dude. And I I've met him before. I've taken a picture with him. I got to talk to him at the world junior summer showcase. The two years it was in Michigan. The first year I went as a fan, the second time it was right when mile high sports had hired me. So I did that before moving here. And both times I got to interact with him, obviously there to watch his kids. 
Peter Forsberg's a different story. Peter Forsberg's like that forbidden fruit, that guy that was a, such a big piece of this organization, but isn't around. You know, you don't run into him, like you said, with Milan Hayduk. You don't run into him at a bar like you do with Hayduk. Patrick Waugh came back and coached. Joe Sackick, you know, I'm sharing elevators with him daily now. He's the GM of the team. Peter Forsberg's that one that kind of got away. He's that, he's, he's what Nick Lidstrom was to the Red Wings in the sense where he was this powerful Swede and then retired and went back to Sweden. So you don't get to see him as much as the Red Wing fans do with somebody like Iserman or Osgood or, you know, whatever other legends they have. He just kind of steals the room and he's he's got such a great, like, swagger to him, the way he carries himself. I love the new look, the salt and pepper uh, hair with the glasses. He's just got like a very professional Peter Forsberg look to him. And you often forget that this is the guy that was throwing reverse hits on everybody while he controlled the play. Right. Well, I hear he's doing well in Sweden. So, you know, no need to feel bad for him. He's making a great life for himself. And, you know, he's probably very happy with what he's doing. So, uh, yeah, time to move on. Let's talk about the uh, avalanche present day. Uh, Of course, Nathan McKinnon, the the latest news and the biggest news right now is Nathan McKinnon still out in COVID protocol testing positive on Saturday. So I guess what's that mean? What's that mean for the avalanche moving forward? And, uh, you know, what's your take on the whole thing? That means everybody's favorite superhero, Jason Megna, has to step up tomorrow (laughs) once again on uh, Tuesday. I'm just kidding. Uh, Nathan McKinnon, obviously, on Sunday here at practice this morning, which I'm surprised the Avalanche practiced again Sunday. I thought they would take the day off. Uh, Jared Bednar said that McKinnon had another positive test of COVID on Saturday. I believe he has to show two negative tests in order to be cleared. So he's not going to travel with the team Monday which likely means he's not going to play Tuesday unless we wake up Tuesday morning and find out that Sunday and Monday and Tuesday or two of those days were negative tests. And then he'll just take a flight in and be like, I'm in like, I'm not sitting. Screw you guys. I'm playing. And uh, not like the avalanche are going to fight him and be like, no, no, we don't need you. (laughs) One more, one more game. (laughs) We can take the capitals and we'll need you against the Florida teams. How about that? Nate? No, he's he'll, he'll play as soon as he's ready to go. Um, so that's one guy that, you know, we haven't seen this season yet since that last uh, preseason game. And then there's a whole bunch of guys that are that were missing from Wednesday's game. And you kind of just go down the list and realize the Avalanche are facing some early season adversity already. Yeah, but that's a good thing about it, right, is that it's early season. You're hoping that, you know, come the down the stretch and maybe even around the uh, Olympic break, you got a full locker room full of guys. I mean, most of it's COVID, right? You got Jack Johnson out with COVID. You got McKinnon out with COVID. Of course, Francis, Nachuskin, and Taves. Taves on his way back. So really, the injuries you're dealing with right now are Nachuskin and Francis. I mean, there could be worse things going on. So I think uh, if this is the worst of it, then the Avalanche are in good shape. But yeah, it's tough to come out the gate. At least they already got one win under their belt. Hopefully they can steal at least one or two uh, in the upcoming road trip. But yeah, it's it's not an ideal spot because we always hear how important it is to start the season strong. Yeah, and obviously Gabe Landeskog serving the first of his two-game suspension. That's not something you want to see him doing throughout the season or anybody for that matter, you know, getting suspended and, and losing a key part of your team where, you know, I don't think when Gabe took that hit and got that suspension, he thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to miss two games and so are 17 other guys. No, I think he probably was like, this is a bummer, but the guys can carry the slack. The problem is those guys that would carry the slack are all out too. So it's kind of, it's a little weird right now. Like your top line was Kadri, Ranton, and Burakovsky because they were the only three of the top six that were left in the lineup because all of Nachushkin, Landeskog and McKinnon missed that game. And the other guy who was supposed to be in contention for a top six spot, Alex Newhook, was sent down because, you know, we've been talking about it in length. He didn't have a great preseason or training camp. He wasn't that good on opening night. 
and the Avalanche had a conversation with him to send him down to regain his confidence with the Eagles, which I think he will do. Um, but they don't need to rush him. They don't need to play him if he's not ready to go. And and that's kind of the message they're sending to him. So a lot of guys missing. Jack Johnson, just an update on him, did have a negative test Saturday. So he's probably going to travel with the team Monday and he'll likely be back, which thank the Lord means we probably don't have to see Curtis McDermott play. He wasn't too good at all. Really bad in his first game on Saturday, <laughs> to, to put it nicely. So it's nice to see that the Avalanche aren't going to need to use him and that Jack will be back. And, you know, Jack deserves to play. He had a hell of a game on Wednesday. I think that's kind of what makes the new hook sending down a situation that much bigger of a message, right? The Avalanche are kind of desperate for bodies and the, and they still say, you know, new hook, you're, you're going down to the Eagles, even though we kind of need you right now. Um, but yeah, again, I, I think it's nothing to panic about until you start seeing those lingering injuries. You know, if you see McCarr suddenly out again with a, a lower body or you see Kemper re-aggravate something or, or even Eric Johnson miss a, a few games for an injury, I think that's when you really start to worry. This is all stuff that's going to kind of heal itself and go back to normal. Like you said, the Landis guy is just a suspension. McKinnon, it's COVID, and he'll he's likely asymptomatic is what kind of the vibe I'm getting, right? So, I mean, it's probably not affecting his life too much. So everything's going to kind of go back to normal here soon, as long as it's not injuries you're dealing with, you're in a good spot. Yeah, the Avalanche, you know, they, instead of playing New Hook, they decided to go with Dylan Sakura and Stefan Mateau, and obviously Mateau... Uh, got hurt himself in the first period and didn't play. He only played just over three and a half minutes on uh, Saturday. So what I kind of like, if there's a, a something good to take away, it's the fact that now you're seeing which players can step up. So we've seen, you know, some guys play good. We saw Tyson Joe score a late goal. We saw JT Comfort score a late goal. We saw them both play over 20 minutes. We saw Burakovsky, who if you remember when we recorded on Thursday, I kind of mentioned hasn't been the best or Friday, whenever the hell we recorded. I, I mentioned he hasn't been the best and you said he'll get it. And he did. He scored a really nice goal and uh, he could have had another one. So there's guys that are stepping up and stepping in and they're playing well. So now when you get the McKinnons and the Landeskogs back and they fit like a glove because McKinnon's gonna not going to need time to get back up to speed. Those guys are going to be what they, you know, what they always are. Darcy, not Darcy, Devon Taves is going to be the guy that he always is. Well, now you've got these guys playing and you've got the guys that stepped up in their absence also have confidence. Jack Johnson wouldn't have been on the opening night lineup if Devontae was healthy. But now Jack Johnson is riding high because he had a hell of a first game and we're excited for him to come back off of the COVID protocol. So now when Devontae comes back, Jack isn't just your number seven defenseman. It's who the hell do we sit? And if it is Jack, it's a tough decision. Yeah, well, the the 5-3 loss to St. Louis, it wasn't the prettiest, right? But you kind of expected it with the lineup that they had. Of course, they almost made it interesting. We'll get into that in a second. But yeah, th there were a few bright spots. I loved Verkovsky's goal. I liked the way Rantanen played too, right? He, he was really knocking on the door, got robbed on that one power play one-timer in typical Rantanen fashion. I, I mean, he's just on the edge of you know, breaking out for the year, I think. So, um, you know, it, it's just kind of an elongated preseason at this point. You want to try to steal some wins here and there until you're back to 100% and can really get focused and grinding at the task at hand. But yeah, I mean, I, I liked, I liked there, were, there were some positives out of the loss, right? And, you know, I, I guess, were there any other bright spots for you? I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Miko Rantanen had a hell of a game too. Nazem Kadri had a great game again. He's had a good start to the season. He's already got four mm -hmm. points. Uh, Bowen Byram had a good game. He almost scored again. Um, Kadri what I like about Byram, too, he he really seemed to take over when it was needed, right? It was like, all right, now we're in crunch time. We kind of got to 
pushed and tried to get back in this game. He was shooting the puck. He was attacking the net. He's, he kind of put it on his shoulders. You love to see that attitude and that confidence. He's only got one NHL goal, but he he he's ready for more. He's going to be so good, man. He's he's going to be in that Calder Trophy race. If, the, if he plays more minutes, uh, which will likely happen if the Avalanche have an injury to their top four every now and again, um, he's going to be a big piece of that top four, man. And I think he's going to take over for Eric Johnson pretty soon in terms of top four uh duties but there was a lot of there was a lot of good from that game uh even though it kind of ended the way it did i mean is if there was ever a time to look at an avalanche game and say this is going to be a loss it was that one you know you had the st louis blues were starting their season yesterday saturday that was their first game of the season so opening night you're always going to have a jolt of energy they were a fully healthy lineup they had pavel buchnevich making his debut james neal making his debut obviously brandon Saad making his Blues debut against the team that he just played for last season in the Avs. They had Jordan Bennington and Nate. They had all their guys back. But on top of that, the Blues were also there to avenge two things. A sweep at the hands of the Avalanche and the hit that knocked Justin Falk out to Nazem Kadri. And if you're a Blues fan and you're watching your opening night on Saturday, you've spent the entire summer grinding your teeth because Nazem Kadri knocked out one of your top two defensemen. And the Avalanche swept you in the playoffs. And then you found out your opening night is going to be at Ball Arena in Denver against them. You're like, we got to get them. We got to get them. And what happened? 40 seconds in, Braden Shen, one of your better players, uh, went out and challenged Nazem Kadri. Kadri answered the bell because he knows the hockey code and he follows it. And it was a pretty good fight. You know, I wouldn't say either of them won, but Braden Shen did score the takedown. And then during the five minutes that Shen and Kadri are in the penalty box, who scored the goal? It was Justin Falk. So if you're a Blues fan, you're looking at that and you're like, yes, we're getting them. And then they scored a couple more and then they had a four to one lead and then they almost lost it at the end. But then who else but their captain scores the empty netter to make it 5-3. That's a great game for St. Louis. So if there was an ever a game, to, you know, not just from that point of view, but because of the adversity the Avs were facing with their roster troubles and playing a man short, if there was ever a game to kind of mark as a loss, it was going to be that one. Yeah, they had a little more firepower. And you could just tell by the way Bennington was playing, he just had a little bit more focus to him. He was out to to avenge. He was out to avenge the fact that I think he's no better than Antti (laughs) Niemi, but damn, he had a good game. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the uh, kicking play. Obviously, the Avs almost tied it up there, made it 4-4, and the goal was waved off because Tyson Joe's kicking the goal in the net. I mean, after replay and, you know, seeing seeing the goal a few times... Obviously, you have to agree that it was a kicking play, right? There's still no controversy. I was a little bit shocked at the crowd booing the ref and disagreeing with the call because in my opinion, and from what I was seeing, it was obviously a kick. I don't think Jost meant to kick it. He went to sweep his foot and it kicked the puck, but it's still a kick. I don't think there is uh, an intention or an intent to kick the puck. The fact is he swept his foot and it kicked it. So yeah, I do agree. It shouldn't have. Uh, it shouldn't have counted, which it didn't. It was really close after he kicked it before it crossed the line to hitting his other skate and bouncing off of it and going in. Instead, that other skate that it bounced off of, it was already in the net and the puck was already in the net when it hit it. So had that skate been a little bit outside the the goal line and it hit it first, it would have been a kick from one skate to the other and then deflected in. That would have counted. I, uh, I do agree with Jared Bednar in saying that 
you know, he saw what happened in Toronto with their goal against Ottawa uh, or in Ottawa for the Toronto goal. He saw what happened with Chandler Stevenson, which to me was a freaking kick. Um, so he's upset. And, you know, Jared kind of said it best. His his emotions got the best of him and he came off, obviously, like he was whining about it, which he was because the reality is he was frustrated. And he said, it seems like it counts unless it's us. So I don't disagree that it shouldn't have counted. I do agree that the Chandler Stevenson one was a kick too. And and because they counted that one, Vegas got a win over a team in Seattle that was playing their first game. So it is a little bit of a bummer from that sense, from that point of view. If you ask me, the rule should change. If you kick the puck, it should go in. I think it's the WHL and we should actually, I think the NHL should adopt the WHL rules, which doesn't help Jost, but it does help Chandler Stevenson. In the WHL, they say, if you kick the puck, it's a goal. Who cares? It's a goal unless you kick it in the blue paint. Tyson Joe still kicked it in the blue paint. Chandler Stevenson wouldn't have even needed a review. It was outside the blue paint. He kicked it in. So be it. But I agree. To go back to your initial question, there was no controversy. He kicked it. It shouldn't have counted. And it's a bummer because that was a hell of a comeback from the Avs. Yeah, I really like that rule. I think they should definitely consider that. But you also got to feel good about the fact that they you know they turned it on there at the end of the third period I mean it all started with the four on four with five what five minutes and something seconds left Jared Bednar decided to pull the goalie and put the team up on the power play and essentially they were on the power play for you know a good four and a half minutes until that empty netter finally went in so they were able to heed any shot from St. Louis for almost four and a half minutes which you, you love to see and there were goals that were coming out of it so you know you got to feel good about what the Avs can do on the man advantage I guess that's the biggest takeaway for me from that last little uh, spurt during the game yeah Darcy Kemper was pulled the first time with 558 remaining in the third period uh, they scored twice obviously almost the third time before it was disallowed and then let in an empty netter and to me that's a pretty damn good number to go two and one when your goalie is pulled is a pretty good number early on in the season. So good for the avalanche, not just to play well with the man advantage, uh, not a power play, but an actual man advantage. Good for them to play well. Also, more importantly to me, when your goalie's pulled and knowing that behind you, there's no goalie, there's an empty net and still doing well like they were doing at the blue line, keeping the puck in so many times. Yeah. So you got to feel good. Maybe next time that they're only down one goal, that they uh, might get in, back into that game. And maybe next time when they're down one goal, you don't have Dylan Sakura having to come out because McKinnon and Landeskog and Nachushkin and maybe even Newhook are back and maybe even Devon Taves is playing blue line minutes. So there was just a lot riding against them and for them to show that kind of heart, as much as moral victories aren't a real thing and don't count on the score sheet, that was a damn moral victory the way that game ended. 100%. 100%. Got to take a quick break, tell you guys about DraftKings, of course. NFL fans who are hungry for a big win, much like the Avalanche were hungry for that win, but just fell a bit short. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game, and if they do, you win $200 in free bets. Winner, winner chicken dinner it's that simple DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get skin in the game with new same game parlays I'm excited for when these finally hit the NHL because there's so many fun ones you can do combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout the more legs you add the more money you can win DraftKings is safe secure and reliable and best of all you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want so download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now use promo code MHS just to bet $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with the promo code MHS this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. 
Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Well, time to look at who's next, Arif. The Avalanche are heading on their first road trip of the season. As we said in the last podcast, the, the opening schedule for the Avalanche has been pretty lenient for them, right? They're getting two days off here, two days off there. Too bad they don't really need the rest because their stars are out with COVID and out with a suspension. So they're kind of already resting. But um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot more facing them here as they head to Washington on Tuesday. And then they'll be in Florida on Thursday and Saturday in Tampa Bay wrapping up the, the road trip. So I guess what, what do you expect to see? What do you want to see? What are you uh, hoping for out of this road trip here? Uh, I want to see the Avalanche get healthy and continue to uh, build what they're building. I think the Chicago game was great. The St. Louis game started really bad, ended really well, but obviously all the adversity they were facing was a little bit of uh, you know, a, a, an obvious factor in that. So I want to see them continue that. Uh, I also want to see, because I'm going to be on this uh, goal watch for the next five years, as I have been for the last three years, I want to see Ovechkin bury one. The Avalanche win four to one. I want that goal to be Ovechkin. If the Avalanche win six to three, I want all three of those goals to be Ovechkin. He's got three of the capital six goals already. And then on top of that, I want to see the Avs play really well, win or lose, no matter who's in the lineup against Tampa and Florida. Because I don't think we did Stanley Cup picks when we did our last episode and we talked about our two episodes ago when we talked about the Central Division rankings. But to me, the Avalanche... Which are off to a terrible start, by the way. Well, it, it's looking pretty good for me because I said Chicago's going to be bad in the beginning and fire their coach. Uh, yeah, you also said Winnipeg <laughs> would be great, and they are off to a very slow start. Yeah, I know, and Minnesota's kind of like just barely scraping away their victories, but mm-hmm. you know, we're still two games in. A lot, lot can happen between now and when Jeremy Carlton gets fired. So <laughs> <laughs> um, what the hell was I going to say? Oh, yeah, my my Stanley Cup pick, if you ask me, if the Avalanche make the Cup Finals, it's they're going to play the Florida Panthers. So I want to see them play well against that team. And then Tampa Bay is the litmus test. They're the you know the the two time defending Stanley Cup champions right now, and um, they beat the Capitals the other day two to one. Guess who scored the one goal for the Caps? It was Ovechkin, and the overtime goal for the Tampa Bay Lightning was interesting. I haven't seen the replay, and I really want to because the scoreline reads for three on three overtime game winning goal Steven Stamkos assisted by number forty one Pierre Edward Belmar, and I really want to know how that happened. So. Those are the three teams, obviously, that the Avs are going to play. They're not easy games, but they're going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, that's the bummer of the Avalanche facing adversity right now is they're off to face three pretty good teams. And it's kind of strange to say Tampa Bay's off to a slow start. They might be yeah. the weaker of the three teams, but any way you look at it, if they get a W in any of these three upcoming games, it's it's going to be a steal. So right now the Avs are just looking to steal some wins, stay afloat, not get too buried in the standings early. So that way, once everybody's ready to go and they're buzzing at full force, they're uh, you know they're looking good, feeling good, playing good. Uh, that's all you can really do is just go in there and hope to steal some games. Yeah, you want to know what the next six Avalanche games are? You got Capitals, Panthers, Lightning, and then you come back home and play the Golden Knights, and then you go to St. Louis and play the Blues, and then you come back home and play the Minnesota Wild. Those are six tough games before you go back-to-back with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So uh, six pretty big games. The next two at Ball Arena are going to be the Golden Knights in the wild. And like the Blues, we're familiar with those teams from last year. I do want to mention, just because uh, I, I noted that Columbus thing, this is a really cool thing I learned from one of the writers in Columbus, Aaron Portslide of The Athletic. Remember how before COVID happened, the Avalanche announced that they were going to do a two-game series against the Blue Jackets in Finland? 
Mm-hmm. So when the schedule was released this summer, they put the Avalanche and Blue Jackets games on Wednesday, November 3rd and Saturday, November 6th. Now look at the Avalanche schedule around it. They play Saturday the 30th, and then they got two days off before the game Wednesday. Then they got two days off before the game Saturday. And then after that game against the Blue Jackets, they got five days off before they play the Vancouver Canucks. The NHL schedule makers purposely put the two Avalanche Blue Jackets games back-to-back over an 11-day period because in their minds, they said, maybe between now and October, now and November, we can send them to Finland. But it never didn't end up happening. So now the Avalanche and the Blue Jackets are just going to play both their games twice, two games over an 11 day stretch, which will give whoever's injured like Nichushkin time to heal or Fransuz. But the, they did it like that because they were still hoping that they can send them to Finland, which obviously didn't happen. Do you think there's any chance that that gets reversed and maybe they're still behind the scenes trying to work out some things and maybe later gets announced? Maybe. I, I don't remember what Aaron Portsline said about if it was set in stone that it wasn't happening uh, or not, but maybe. I mean, it, it could be. It's still two and a half weeks away. I, I bet the Avalanche won't be too happy with it. They'll be like, yeah, we're, especially given the COVID, you know, stuff they've been dealing with already. They're like, yeah, we're not really into getting on an airplane and flying out to Europe. So can we please just play at the Pepsi Center or whatever the hell it's called, Ball Arena and Nationwide? So just a cool little thing about the schedule there. The Avalanche are going to play two games between October 30th and November, October 31st and November 10th. And they're going to both be against the Blue Jackets because the NHL was hoping to send them to Finland. It just didn't happen. Yeah. Another testament to, to the generosity of the Avalanche schedule, right? I mean, it really doesn't start getting rigorous till November 11th. So kind of easing their way into it. And, you know, let's, let's hope for, uh, for, for the best here for this upcoming stretch here. And by then you'll hope that, I mean, Taves likely will be back by then, but you hope that Fransuz and Nichushkin are also back by then as well. So that going into that stretch on the 11th, where they play 11, 13, 17, 19, 22, 24, 26, 27, there's a lot of games there in November. You hope that by then you have both your goalies in Fransuz and Kemper, uh, you have Nichushkin back and you have a fully healthy lineup or pretty close to it. Yeah, and hopefully COVID stays far away from this team. It really feels, I mean, maybe just because of our perspective, but it really feels like the Avalanche have been affected more than any other team by COVID in the last two years. Yeah, over the last two years, yeah, for sure. They were the only one that had that pause twice last season, and the Mm -hmm. second time was uh, Devin Dubnik playing like five games in a row all against the St. Louis Blues. I mean, last year was such a weird... Remember getting an email from Avalanche PR going, Avalanche shut down, won't play again for 12 days. And we're like, all right, yeah, cool. Another 12 day break. Like that's not a normal thing. (laughs) Like those are not things we should be used to. Yeah. For us, it was a chance to exhale too, right? It was such a rigorous start to the season back to back every other day, every other day. So Uh, yeah, last year was just really weird. But this season, uh, the Seattle Kraken going into their opening game, they had like four or five guys, which included Giannis Donskoy on COVID protocol, to the point where they didn't even know who was going to play. Nobody knew until they took the ice for the pregame skate of their first ever NHL game. Pittsburgh kind of also had something similar with Aston Reese and Bluger and guys like that. But over the last two years, yeah, it's the Avalanche. It's they, They've had it the most and the worst. And it even got to their coaching staff. Like Jared Bednar didn't coach opening night. Like how many teams had that happen right now? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when Nathan McKinnon's career is all said and done and you look back and you're like, oh, man, he just barely missed the 82-game mark in that 2021 20, season. And it's like, well, it was because of coat, right? I mean, it's, you're just going to look back and it's going to suck that it's, it's taken 
games out of his career. I mean, obviously yeah. you have to do it, but it's just a bummer that it's affecting him and affecting the Avs again. And it makes me think also how about the Denver Broncos having to use a wide receiver at quarterback last mm, year, right? Why is, yep. why is COVID just killing the, the Denver sports scene, I guess? Yeah, it's it's such a bummer for McKinnon that the COVID thing, as you know, as much as you want it to not happen in general, it couldn't happen like the first couple of days of the preseason so that he's out for a week right. during yeah. preseason or even the whole off season and that he not had. literally the day before opening night, like 100% the actual 24 hours before puck drops. It's crazy. Yeah. He had to say, man, you gotta be kidding me. And just slapped his forehead. And said, oh, man. That jolly McKinnon we saw in the, in the media room, first day of training camp is already gone. He's not happy. <laughs> it's <laughs> over. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, that brings us to the uh, wrap up of our show, how we end every single one. And that's with the Mile High Sports, three stars of the week presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. Star number three, we're going to former NHL referee Dave Jackson for his new ESPN gig, not only because he resides here in Colorado and he has close ties to the hockey scene here, you know, he's involved in a lot of things around here locally, but we also have a personal tie to him, too. So seeing him get this ESPN gig and be the guy that they go to when it comes to uh, referee analysis, right? It was the Chandler Stevenson goal that they had to come get his opinion on uh, in the opening night for ESPN. So, yeah, I mean, I guess tell the story there. Yeah. Uh, Dave Jackson, obviously, is the one that got me into the coach's room with that Jordan Samuels Thomas story I wrote during the preseason. Um mm-hmm. Dave has also been at a few of the Avalanche games during the preseason and obviously yesterday after the game I got to talk to him and Brad Watson and we discussed the Tyson Jost kick, we discussed the Chandler Stevenson kick, so on and so forth. Um, and in terms of that personal relationship, Dave Jackson's a lender and uh, he's helping me buy a house with my real estate agent, JJ Jerez. So it's just really cool to see this guy that you know I'm talking to about house loans and buying a house suddenly shows up at the Avalanche game and goes, yeah, I'll be in the press box. And I'm like, why? You retired many years ago and I get there and he goes, yeah, it's kind of under wraps. We're going to announce it soon, but I'm going to be working for ESPN. I'm going to be their, their call-in referee. Mike Chambers of the Denver Post obviously wrote a story about it. It's online right now. He got to talk to Dave about that and it's just really cool. Dave Jackson and I sit up in the press box, talk about hockey, talk about his new ESPN gig. And then he asks me if I'm looking at any houses right now because he's trying to make that sale. I love the hustle, love the grind. Right. Absolutely wild to see him all of a sudden pop up on ESPN. I wasn't expecting it. We're trying to get you a house here. And uh, there he is, our lender, giving us some uh, NHL analysis. So <laughs> you love to see it. But shout out to Dave Jackson for doing big things and making a career when, you know, maybe you thought he was just going to have to be in lending forever. He, uh, he got us, got himself a side hustle. You got to have those side hustles it's nowadays. It's really great that he, he yeah, it's, it's great that he gets to work with ESPN and not people like me on a daily basis. It's <laughs> It's a lot more rewarding. Star number two, we're giving it to Bo and Byram for scoring his first NHL game. And like I said, he's just showing the tenacity of a, a leader out there. And he's really, you know, taking it upon himself to see that the Avalanche succeed. And you just love that attitude and you love what you're seeing out of Bo Byram. And, you know, granted he stays healthy. I think he's going to be a huge piece once this season's um, over when we look back. Yeah, it's a hell of a goal. He's got a lot of confidence. Uh, speaking of the defense, and I know I kind of mentioned the top four minutes a little bit ago. It's nice to see that the Avalanche are not overplaying Eric Johnson. And he's playing around 17 minutes a game over these last two games because they know what he can provide at this point. And there has been nothing that EJ has done to say he's playing bad, which is exactly what you want from a defenseman. 
You want him to not look bad. You want him to not look, uh, not, not stick out in any way, just be a serviceable defenseman. And what that says to me is as the avalanche get healthy and as Taves and these guys come back, and even though McDermott was in the lineup yesterday and played only 10 minutes, EJ was still at 17. And what that says to me is Bo Byram's going to be a top four defenseman, if not by actual position and starting every game with Gerard Taves or Makar, at least it's going to be in terms of ice time because he's going to play all over in the PP and everything. So shout out to Bo. I think he's going to have a hell of a season. And I think if he gets enough minutes, he'll be in that Calder Trophy race as well. Right. The Avalanche released some footage of uh, the locker room after he scored that first goal. And of course, Landy saying, you know, yeah. his short little prep speech and tosses the puck over to Bo Byram. And you just love how unfazed Bo Byram was by it. He's like, yeah, whatever. I could go. Let's try to string some wins together, though. And that's what that's what mattered to him more than the goal. Right. And you love that attitude. So moving on, obviously, we got to give star number one to Pierre Lacroix. Uh, obviously, just a great ceremony for him and just what he's done for the Colorado sports scene and for Avalanche fans everywhere can't be matched and we hope that Joe Sackett can somehow replicate it but what what he did will never be replicated so um yeah Pierre Lacroix gets star number one and we've given him his praise we've given him a a lot of airtime back when the passing first happened we dedicated a lot of time on the podcast we dedicated some time on the hockey show with Ryan Boulding we interviewed Adam Foote. So if you want to go back in the archives and hear that interview, it's a really good interview. You could really hear how much he was loved here in Colorado. So Pierre Lacroix, shout out to you, star number one. Rest in peace, my man. Rest in peace, Pierre, and congratulations to his family, his wife Coco, his sons Marty and Eric, his grandchildren, his daughters, uh, for the banner raising ceremony yesterday for his banner to sit up there with the six legends. Uh, My favorite word, I don't think we've used it enough, during our 30, 40 minutes of talking about him earlier, is architect. He is the architect of the Colorado Avalanche. He is why this team is what they are. He is why Joe Sackick is the GM. He is why Gabe Landeskog is the is the is the captain that he is, learning from Sackick, who learned from him. The Avalanche owe a lot to Pierre Lacroix, and yesterday was just a little bit of what he deserves. Yes, well said, well said. So, yeah, that being said, this is where we wrap up the podcast. Arif, any final closing thoughts for the people as we uh, finish up this Sunday edition of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to Avalanche podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook? Nothing from me. We got some fun road games coming up, some 5 p.m. starts. Uh, We'll talk to you guys in the middle of the week. We'll talk to you guys next Sunday. Let's see what the Avalanche can do. 82 games. Let's do it. Yep, it's a long one. Got to steal some here, though. So they got to put on their uh, Hamburglar mm-hmm. costumes in honor of Halloween that's right around the corner and start stealing some games here, starting with this road trip here. So thanks so much for hanging out with us. Of course, Patrick Stedman, thank you for making us sound good and doing all the editing and making us be pretty in the ears of the listeners. And uh, yeah, if you made it this far in the podcast, bless your heart. Hockey's for everyone. We out you.